0: This week on the show, we cover OpenBSD 6.3 and DragonflyBSD 5.2, which have new releases. Uh, We have a bug fix for disappearing files in OpenZFS on Linux and only Linux, mind you. Uh, We cover understanding the FreeBSD CPU schedule a little bit talk about netBSD on RPi3, thoughts on being a committer for 20 years, wow, and five reasons to use FreeBSD in 2018 on this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 243, Understanding the Scheduler, recorded for the 25th of April 2018. Hi, I'm your host, Benedikt Reuschling. And I'm Alan Ju. Glad to have you back this week. Uh, Alan is still on conferences, but we couldn't resist to pre-record these episodes, so um, we go through our regular headlines this week, starting with OpenBSD 6.3 being released, on time of course.
1: Yes, um, as punctual wise. as ever. It actually seems to have leaked out a couple days early. Uh, but we have the latest released 6.3 of OpenBSD. Uh, doesn't have a song yet, so that's disappointing, but uh, everything else looks pretty interesting. Uh, okay. Glossing over some of the interesting uh, bits. Uh, lots of improved hardware support, including SMP support for ARM64. Uh, lots of Broadcom and XPower and allwinner drivers for all the little different devices. Uh, they now have an EFI driver for the runtime service. Uh, then a bunch of improvements to VMM and VMD. That's the uh, hypervisor in OpenBSD. Mm, which we saw at uh, VHiveCon. VH a couple of mm. new things here. Uh, including uh, CD-ROM and DVD ISO support. Uh, and a bunch of those. Uh, Lots of wireless improvements, including the IWM and IWN drivers, uh, will now automatically roam between access points if they have the same ESS ID. Oh, yeah. Excellent. That's certainly helpful. Uh, A bunch of generic network stack improvements, including the network stack no longer runs with the kernel lock when IPsec is enabled. Uh, The processing of incoming packets is now done without that kernel lock, and socket-splicing tasks can run without the kernel lock.
0: Excellent. Uh, getting less and less locks on OpenBSD is always good for performance.
1: Yep, they also uh, removed a bunch of IPv6 code since the uh, auto-configuration stuff now runs in user land instead of in the kernel. And they have the new SYN cookies feature for PF and support for uh, GRE over IPv6, which is interesting.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, does, does OpenBSD have that exclusively? Do you know
1: that? Is that? Um, I don't know. Hmm. Uh, improvements okay. to the installer, including allowing you to use CIDR notation when setting the IP address and repair the selection of mirrors and allowing dashes in usernames.
0: Ah, in case you need that, like user-1, user-2 or something.
1: Yep. Uh, a bunch of routing daemons and other user-land network improvements the new the bgp control has a new ssv option the uh slackd which is the stateless auto configuration for v6 uh OSPFD can now set the metric uh for a route depending on the status of the interface if config has a static arp option uh and ipsec control uh can now collapse flow outputs having the same source and destination nice and, of course, security improvements,
0: because OpenBSD, not uh, not too far away from that.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, they got the trap sleds, more read-only data, um, the exec promise feature for pledge, um, the map stack feature, uh, some pieces of Carl, uh, random gap at the top of thread stacks uh, to make ROP a little bit harder, uh, the mitigations for meltdown. Uh, on Intel A&D 64 CPUs. Um, ARM 64 uh, now uses the kernel page table isolation uh, to mitigate Spectre V3, which is Meltdown. Uh, and ARM V7 and ARM 64 now flush the branch target buffer on processors that do speculative execution uh, to mitigate Spectre variant 2. Ooh, okay. um, a bunch of improvements so. to their DHCP client and then assorted other improvements, including code reorganization and other improvements to malloc, uh, for memory allocation and, uh, improvements to fdisk, uh, soft raid, disk label, TCP dump. Uh, the TCP dump one is interesting because you can now dump, uh, USB transfers into USB PCAP. Uh, and they changed the default prompts for CSH, KSH, and SH to now include the host name of the machine.
0: So small things like that uh, is like, oh, I didn't know I missed that feature, but now it's yeah. there. It's even cooler.
1: Yeah. Uh, they added uh, an SPF walk option to uh, OpenSMTPD, uh, updated OpenSSH to version 7.7. Lots of changes there. That'd be yeah. a separate just a bit of new. <laughs> a long list, uh, yeah. LibraSSL oh. 2.7.2. And then various ports and packages. Uh, They have about 8,000 pre built ports for ARM64 and about 10,000 for AMD64. Wow,
0: that's a lot. Yeah, that's definitely a good list uh, of ports and packages. And uh, of course, you find all the Arctic well, articles, architectures uh, OpenBSD runs on and how to upgrade and uh, how to get the ports tree and things like that at the bottom of the release docs. Yep. Okay, um, but this is not the only release we're covering today. We also have Dragonfly BSD 5.2 being released as the next item. Uh, this one is over at dragonflybsd.org, of course. And it reads that they have some uh, big ticket items. Uh, Of course, as always, as everyone or as every open source operating system project has to work with, Meltdown Inspector Mitigation Support is here also in Dragonfly BSD. Specifically, that Meltdown Isolation Inspector Mitigation Support was added. Uh, Meltdown mitigation is automatically enabled for all Intel CPUs. Spectre mitigations must be enabled manually via CCTL if desired. And using CCTL's macdab.spectre underscore mitigation and macdab underscore meltdown mitigation needs to be set. And that will activate that specific mitigation for Spectre. So, Hammer 2 has also gotten some uh, updates. Uh, H2, well, which is, of course, Hammer 2, uh, that has received a large number of bug fixes and performance improvements, the show notes tell us. Uh, we can uh, now recommend H2 as the default root file system in non-clustered mode. But cluster support is not yet available. So, that's still coming. And they have IPFW updates. Uh, they implement state-based redirect, like uh, without using libalias. alias, Uh, IPFW now also supports all possible ICMP types and they fixed some ICMP underscore max type assumptions now 40 as of this release. They also have uh, improved graphics support. The DRM slash i915 kernel driver has been updated to support Intel Coffee Lake GPUs. So that's nice. And they added a 24-bit pixel format support to the EFI frame buffer code as well as significantly improved the FBIO support for the SCFB XOR driver. And this allows EFI frame buffers to be used by X in situations where we do not otherwise support JIT GPU. Wow, that's certainly a good improvement in the graphics area. And they partly implemented the FBIO underscore blank IOCTL for display power saving, also good. And uh, SysCons waits for DRM mode setting at appropriate places avoiding uh, race conditions or races. So if you want to learn all the changes since Dragonfly BSD 5.0 up to this version 5.2, you can read a very long list by just scrolling down. It's a long list of changes because that's covered multiple releases. Uh, But for people who want to get the Dragonfly BSD 5.2, we have people in the chat room already doing the update. It's been working fine for them. And, uh, yeah, if you're in Dragonfly, try it out and... um, Report back to us, actually. We don't get many news from Dragonfly BSD these days. So um, send it to uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv to cover it in the next episode.
1: This week's episode of BSD Now is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Head over to digitalocean.com and get started today. It takes less than 55 seconds to spin up a free BSD droplet in the cloud, and you'll get a nice quick VM for $5. It's a gigabyte of RAM, a terabyte of transfer, and 25 gigs of storage. Uh, your choice of FreeBSD on UFS or ZFS.
0: Yeah. Because once you get started with your own little uh, droplet in the cloud, you're like, huh, that's nice. Actually, I could run more services on that or I could try more applications. I've always wanted to try them being available on the internet. Of course, making them secure is always important. That's why uh, DigitalOcean also provides you with a easy-to-use firewall for your little droplets so you can configure what kind of ports are being accessible or uh, what kind of stuff doesn't uh, pass the firewall and things like that. So that also helps you... Uh, Run your droplets securely.
1: Yeah, um, with the so basically to get started, you go to the website. Uh, you decide I need to deploy this prebuilt app or this operating system. So you can choose FreeBSD or you could choose something else. Uh, then you choose the size and type of your droplet. Uh, all of them are SSD backed, but you can choose more RAM or more CPUs or more of both. You can have something as small as $5 this month or as big as you could possibly need. Uh, And then you just pick where in the world you want to put it, choosing from eight different locations, including uh, San Francisco, Toronto, New York, London, Amsterdam, Frankfurt, Bangalore, and Singapore.
0: Excellent. Yeah, those are the locations. And uh, you could also use the team feature to add friends to your droplet so you can all manage those without giving them everything. So they can say that person should be allowed to manage the droplet but shouldn't be allowed to look into my uh, billing.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to make sure that somebody else has access to your droplets in case you're away or something, especially if you know it's for a team thing or a group or something.
0: Yeah, you can also make backups, of course, as well as snapshots. So these are two different things. And uh, both help you in case there's a disaster or you need to roll back to an earlier state. You can get that as well with DigitalOcean.
1: You know, I remember back in the day where we would have a team-like thing like this, but it would be all the people putting their money together in order to get one server.
0: One big server, yeah. yeah. Well, no, to get one
1: machine that didn't even (laughs) have a gig of RAM. And yeah, a terabyte of internet transfer was just unheard of, uh, and now you can get all that for five dollars. Yeah, uh, or you could internet. decide you don't need it for the whole month, uh, and do their hourly pricing, and then you know it's fractions of a penny.
0: Yeah, it's it's it just opens you to so many new possibilities. It's like, uh, oh. Oh, I could do that. Oh, I can do this with multiple machines. Wow, cool. Especially when you are using our coupon code, Now, which gives you a $10 credit, uh, and that can uh, start your little experimentation phase uh, with $10. That's already something. Which uh, In DigitalOcean's uh, pricing, you can get a couple of good machines or a single one
1: yep. with a bit more uh, yes, CPU. Uh, well, that's the nice thing with the hourly pricing is you can decide, I actually need this big one over here with uh you know 8 CPUs and 32 gigs of RAM but i only need it for today and just so today this once you pay 23.8 cents an hour for however many hours you need and then you delete it yeah it's and not used anymore it's like okay i did 4 hours i spent less than a dollar the end yeah Who would buy hardware for just this case? It's
0: just nonsense. So, yeah, that's what the cloud is for. Yeah. yeah. I also remember back
1: in the day, if you (laughs) wanted a server, it took a couple of days to get it set up, not 45 seconds.
0: Yeah. (laughs) This is uh, changing a lot of things. So, try it out on DigitalOcean and uh, definitely use our coupon code. Uh, next up is a an actual a critical thing. So we should mention this. Uh, this is a Linux thing, but we thought we should mention this on the show because it's uh, involving ZFS. Uh, the issue is ZFS on Linux uh, uh, has a bug which causes files to disappear. And
1: we have a GitHub issue here, which uh, Alan will go so, through more details. I'll say the, the bug's already fixed. And, okay. ah. First disclaimer, we're recording this on April 11th. By the time this comes out, I'm sure they'll have a better analysis of what actually went wrong. Yeah. Um, but for the time being... I can only tell you what knowledge I have when I wrote this last night. Uh, not what's going to happen two weeks from now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yes, We're So we'll dead. start at the beginning. Uh, there is a bug in ZFS on Linux version 0.7.7. 7. Uh, that's only been out for a couple of days uh, at this point. They've already released zero point seven point eight with the fix, so uh, yeah, that's just update early. and you'll be safe anyway. Uh, but I thought it might be interesting to explain some of the details of what happened here, um, and and cover that.
0: Yeah, and so don't panic. The bug only impacts Linux. The change that caused the problems was not upstreamed yet, so it does not impact ZFS on ELOMOS, not FreeBSD, not OS ten not zfs on windows which is still in beta but still so linux
1: only yeah linux only and in general only on old versions of linux and we'll get into why that is in a minute here Uh, okay so the bug can cause files being copied uh into a directory to not be properly linked to the directory uh so that when you then later do ls on the directory or something they're not there um yeah, that's what so, causes people yeah. to panic. I put the files so, in there, definitely. Uh, and it's like more confusing because the files are on the disk and are not going to be overwritten, but you can't see them or even delete them. Uh, they're going to work on a tool for that after. But anyway, uh, so the ZFS on ZFS Linux developers are working on a tool to allow you to recover any files that were lost in this way. Uh, I don't expect that this will affect very many people because it was only for a couple of days, only on old versions of Linux, and only if you are yeah. doing a specific type of workload. But uh, they're going to make a tool anyway. Uh, okay. Basically, the, the files exist. The data is safe. It's just not properly linked into the directory due to the bug. Okay. So, so uh, the, the bug, bug was introduced in a commit made in February uh, into the head branch of ZFS on Linux that was released a couple of days ago. Uh, and it, what it was doing was attempting to improve performance of datasets where you created them with the case insensitivity option. So, one of the features of ZFS is that you can create a dataset where file names are not case sensitive. So, you know, Benedict and Benedict cell with a capital B are the same file. As well as Alan uh, and yes. Alan with a capital A. <laughs> yes, but not Alan with an E. <laughs>
0: No, no, no. Yeah, that's a different. <laughs> uh,
1: but this is partly, you know, for better compatibility with Windows and Mac and so on and other case-insensitive file systems, uh, you know. But because inherently ZFS was originally case-sensitive, um, it could mean that creating a bunch of files with that have basically the same name but the case is different or whatever uh, can cause collisions in the hash that's used to... Uh, link the files into the directory uh and so to try and improve performance uh they introduce a limit to cap how many times we would try to grow the directory zap and i'll explain what a zap is in a second so if trying to grow the zap failed twice uh it would give up and return you no space um just like that the file system's out of space although the file system wasn't actually out of space but it means it couldn't manage to grow the zap um so, to explain uh, what the ZAP is, uh, the ZAP is basically a key value pair data structure, the ZFS attribute processor, um, that contains all the metadata for the directory, including like ACLs and permissions and uh, all oh, the metadata, oh, but also the list of all the files that are in that directory, right? It's each, kind of
0: important to know.
1: <laughs> yeah. In ZFS, each file in a, in a data set. Has an object ID, which is also reused as the inode number, uh, and then so there's this table that says these are all the object IDs that are in this directory. Uh, so there are actually three different versions of the zap: there's a micro zap, the regular zap, and then a fat zap. Ooh, um, cool so, names you know, by if, the way. If the <laughs> uh, directory only has a couple of files in it, then it'll have a micro zap. A regular one will have a regular zap, and one with a, a very large number of files will have a fat zap. Okay, uh, makes sense. And so it's got this hash table, which has basically a bunch of buckets, and you do uh, a very light hash on the file names uh, when they come in, and that decides which bucket they go into. And when a bucket uh, gets full, you can end up with these extra leaves where you have to make the bucket bigger to hold all these files. Um Right, so in the commit, they uh, so quoting from the analysis of the bug, the commit cc63068 caused enospace error when copying a large amount of files between two directories. The reason is that the patch limits zap leaf expansion to two retries and then returns enospace if it fails. However, finding the root cause of this issue uh, was somewhat hampered by the fact that many people were not able to reproduce the issue on their machine. Uh, it turns huh. out this was caused by an entirely unrelated change to GNU core utils and the copy utility. Hey, uh, On later versions of GNU core utils, the files are returned in a sorted order. Uh, instead of in... So originally, in the older versions, they're copied in the order of the return from uh reading the directory but on the newer versions they're return sorted uh it was a fast sort uh so the problem with this is when you're copying from one directory to another directory if you're on an old version like the first person to report this bug was on scientific linux which is running a 2.6.32 kernel which is very old in linux kernel ages um and has this old version of GNU Coreutils. So when they copied all the files from this directory to this directory, it was copying them in the order they were in the hash table instead of in alphabetical order. Uh, so okay. when you're copying in the hash table, you're going to all, all the work will be on the first bucket and then the second bucket and the third bucket. And you could end up needing to expand the leaf multiple times. Uh, whereas if you happen to be running a newer distro of Linux that had the newer copy command, it would copy the files in sorted order, and so they would go you know back and forth between all these buckets yeah. randomly, and you wouldn't have to grow the same leaf multiple times in a row, and you wouldn't hit uh-huh. the limit and cause the bug.
0: That makes sense as an analysis.
1: Yeah. So the intent of limiting retries is to prevent pointlessly growing the table to its maximum size when adding uh, a block full of entries with the same name in different cases in mixed mode. However, it turns out that you can't use any limit on the number of retries. Because when we copy files from one directory in the order the return by the reader syscall, uh, we are copying in the hash order one leaf block at a time, which means that if the leaf block of the source directory had been expanded six times as those files were written originally, when you copy it, it's going to have to expand the destination six times in a row, which is more than two. Uh, so that means that the leaf block in the source directory has expanded six times, and you copy it, and then you'll need to expand the leaf block in the destination directory six times, and when that doesn't work, you have this problem, and you'll get you space, and because of the way it rolled it back, Uh, it might also cause some files not to be linked. So some files won't be copied, and some files might be copied, but not actually show up in the directory listing.
0: Hmm, Because they're in the Uh, wrong
1: There, Because those ones will return success that they had copied when they hadn't. That's tricky, yeah, Yeah, but it's it's been
0: worked on, as we said. Yes, uh, uh, they've
1: uh, already released 0.7.8 with the offending change rolled back and there's actually another patch to reintroduce most of the original change but without the limit which caused the problem uh, mm-hmm. and there's also been talk about uh, you know making the ZFS on Linux people get more code review done before they commit things and release them like this
0: Would that also uh, be covered by the um, the ZFS stress
1: test the test suite? Um, yes, well, this test can be added it's just it wasn't yeah. obvious um, it's also not obvious that this same change might've ever been discovered on an OS other than Linux. Uh, because the, the hash table used for the zap actually does have a seed, uh, uh, a salt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from what I can tell on Lumos and BSD, this salt is nice and random on Linux. It's made by XORing two pointers Oh. So the top bits are always zero. <laughs> Oops. Um, and so the salt isn't very strong. Not very salty. Um, yeah. Not very yeah. Uh, random. So copying not from one directory enough. to another directory on BSD, the files should end up in a very different order. Uh, yeah. And so you wouldn't have you wouldn't have ran into this problem. Uh, also, no, it's it's good that we. Um, well, it's not good that yeah. we did, but uh, we know to make sure not to to cap the growing of the zap, but um, it's entirely possible. The same change wouldn't have ever caused a problem on Illumos or FreeBSD. Uh, yeah. Or the pro- it, it still could have caused a problem, but the probability of it happening would have been very, very low because you'd have to have a source and destination directory with a salt that was similar or the same. Mm. Uh, and the chances of that happening with them being random are pretty low. Yeah. Or even if they were, you the chances of you then copying a very large number of files from that director from A to B, or both have similar hashes is just you know very low. Uh but mm. because of other architectural differences on Linux, it impacted there. So we have uh if you were using ZFS on Linux version 0.7.7 7 and did see errors uh, or are concerned. I have some feedback here from Ryan Yao, uh, ZFS on Linux developer who we've interviewed on the show before. This is the regression makes it so that creating a new file could fail with e no space uh, after which files created in that directory could become orphaned where they were copied, they exist, and then they didn't end up getting linked into the, the Metadata. In that directory. Mm. Uh, existing files seem okay uh, but they've yet to confirm that but basically if you're modifying a file that already existed there's not any chance of that file going missing uh, because it was already in the hash bucket uh, Mm. whereas it's only adding new files that could have caused a problem Uh, it is also incredibly difficult to reproduce on systems running modern core utils version 8.23 or later I think current is like 8.28. Um, so far, reports have only come from people using core utils 8.22 or older, which is mostly, you know, CentOS 6 or Scientific Linux 6, uh, mm. anything with an old 2.x kernel instead of a 3 or 4 kernel. Ooh. That's really old. Um so far, reports have only come from people using the Olvern. Uh The directory size actually gets incremented for each orphan file, which makes it uh, wrong after the orphan files uh, happen. Uh, so we would likely have some way to recover any orphan files, something like the, the lost and found directory. Uh, um, so you'll get the a randomly named file, probably the object ID, um, and the content, and you'll have to basically reassign the, the name of the file because that's missing. Mm. Uh, or figure out what directory it was for anyway, but you probably know because you probably only had one of these directories where you were copying a hundred thousand files or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so they'll make a tool that allow you to recover the files that aren't linked into the file system and fix the size of the directories. Um, if you have any snapshots on a damaged data set, you'll have to destroy them, but the tool will give you a list of those. Um, mm. uh, the damage uh, can be removed from the system by just uh, rolling back to a snapshot from before the problem uh, or creating a new data set on a version prior to this or a version after this uh, and copying all the files over and then getting rid of the uh. old one. Uh, this will store things uh, to a pristine condition. It should also be possible to check for pools that are affected, so there will be a way to tell if this problem actually impacted you at all uh, if you're not sure.
0: Yeah, like a scanning tool or just an analysis to tell you, hey, you're affected or not. Yeah. Uh, well, some like, people hey, uh, with the, it'll s-
1: basically scan the pool and be like, hey, there's a file here that's not linked to any directory.
0: Yeah, because with the number of files they were using to trigger that or trigger that bug uh, is likely that people don't actually look at each individual files until it's too late. Yeah. Or uh, don't know about it until years later.
1: I think eventually they got the test case down to only needing about two thousand files in a directory. Uh, but the the thread here uh has 111 comments and has only been open for five days at this point. <laughs> yeah, and well, it's, it's kind of a critical thing. Yeah. The so, the rate of comments slowed down once the problem was fixed. <laughs> oh yeah,
0: people were <laughs> happy that they at least got a an idea where the problem is. Yeah. So yeah, definitely good to know. And for the Linux people, they need some uh, fixing and updating and patching. And
1: yeah, but yeah, um, they once sick they sick. identified the bug before they even knew what the problem was, they managed to get the the package, the 0.7.7, pulled from uh, most of the distros like Fedora and CentOS and Gen 2, I think, and Arch or something like that, yeah. um, so that people wouldn't install it once they knew there was a problem, and then quickly got uh, the fixed version out basically within three days of the bug being opened so that uh, people could go back to having a safe system
0: yeah well of course this problem would not have happened if they viewed that other butterfs but yeah they have other problems there so (laughs) for the people who are using zfs on linux then there's there's help available so time for the news roundup this week we have Des thoughts on being a FreeBSD committer for 20 years. Wow, that's a lot of years, a lot mm-hmm. of time spent for an open source project. And we're quite uh, grateful for those contributions. But let's start at the beginning. Uh, here's so, a blog
1: post. Uh, Des on his blog, uh, Des.no uh, writes, Yesterday was the 20th anniversary of my FreeBSD commit bit. And tomorrow will be the 20th anniversary of my first commit. I figured I'd split the difference and write a blog post about it today. Uh, my level of engagement with the FreeBSD project has varied greatly over the 20 years that I've been a committer. There's been times where I've worked on it full-time and times where I didn't touch it for months at a time. Uh, the last few years, with health issues and life events, have consumed my time and sapped my energy, but my contributions have come in bursts. Uh, commit statistics don't tell the whole story, though. Even when I'm not working on FreeBSD directly... I've been working on side projects, which, like OpenPAM, may one day find their way into FreeBSD. Mm. Um, My contributions have also not been limited to code. I was the project's first bugmeister, the person responsible for the bug tracker, uh, and then later served on the security team for a long time and have been both the security officer and the deputy security officer. And he's also ran the last four core team election and uh, is the returned officer for us this year as well. In return, the project has taught me much about programming and software engineering. It's taught me about code hygiene and the importance of clarity over cleverness. It taught me the ins and outs of revision control and taught me the importance of good documentation and how to write it. And it taught me good release engineering practices. You know, uh, it's actually been very interesting to see. Going through various man pages in FreeBSD, how many of them were written by Des? And so, Mm, very much uh, appreciate his contributions there.
0: Yeah, if only it were
1: for the man pages, but he did much more stuff all over the place. Mm -hmm. But a a lot of things written by other people, and you just see, and this man page was written by Dave Erling for us. Uh, Anyway, continuing, he says, uh, last but not least, Uh, It has provided me with the opportunity to work with some of the best people in the field. I have the privilege today of counting several of them among my friends. For better or worse, the FreeBSD project has shaped my career and my life. It's set me on the path to information security in general, and uh, IAA in particular, and opened many doors for me. It would not be where I am today uh, without it. I won't pretend to be able to tell the future, But I don't know how long I'll remain active in the FreeBSD project and the community. It could be another 20 years, or it could just be five or 10. Uh, All I know is that FreeBSD and I still have a lot to teach each other, and I don't intend to call it quits anytime soon. Sorry. Yeah. uh, It's hard to believe it's been 20 years for some people already. 20 years is
0: a lot. I mean, imagining me
1: 20 years with the project. Ooh, wow, that's certainly
0: a track record to have.
1: I'm getting close to having used FreeBSD for twenty years. Um, mm. I guess the difference is, you know, a lot of people became developers pretty soon after becoming a user, where, you know, I took a long time. I think it was Sure. Yeah. About I mean, Ten cool. years of being a user before I went to my first conference. Uh which I would say is my deepest regret about Almost anything in my life really <laughs> all those misdeeds. not, not BSD having come to b s d cam when I first heard about it in like two thousand and six ah well
0: yeah it's uh, it's still good i mean mm-hmm. you you go to the future ones that's that's certainly yeah. going to happen each year so uh and who knows what you're going to contribute i I guess des didn't know what he was going to work on five ten fifteen years yes, i'm from I'm sure when
1: des started he didn't think he would ever end up being the security officer uh, (laughs) or many of the other things he's done.
0: Yeah, I mean, what I find is that many people start in one area and then do something in a different area and then, you know, sometimes they stay with those two areas or however they are, but some people are also, oh, I add this area to my repertoire or I'm now focusing more on, let's say, networking, coming from storage or the other way around. So... That's certainly nice to broaden your horizon within
1: the project this way. Yeah, and as you said, if you go back to our original interview with Des a couple of years ago, y- you remember he got started with FreeBSD because he liked making demos—the demo, the old demos, yeah. uh, like assembly, <laughs> make the smallest executable you can that does all these fancy graphics and so on—and mm, wanted a better scene, yeah. OS than DOS to build them on top of. And a friend gave him a FreeBSD CD. And that's how he got started. So, going from basically art and compiler magic into security and authentication and authorization is a big shift. Oh, uh,
0: certainly, yeah. But you can see that you can apply many of these techniques, like being memory uh, conservant, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. You can apply that not only for demo scene work, but also for security and operating
1: yes, systems. Or, so yeah, if you're going to build Pam, uh, yeah, yeah. So I mean, Pam uh,
0: alone is books have been written about Pam. So <laughs> uh,
1: many thanks to Des for all of his work and for being uh, part of the community. Yeah, definitely. So, so speaking of being part of the community, this ha, week's yeah. episode of BSD Now is brought to you by iX Systems head over to ixsystems.com slash bsd now and sign up for their guide to buying a new server for open source.
0: Yes, because ixsystems is very engaged in open source. They cover a lot of, uh, or sponsor a lot of uh, free BSD developers or they can sponsor BSD conferences or go to other conferences to not only present their work and what they're doing in hardware, but also community-wise and what kind of uh, software development they do for like um, TrueOS and uh, uh, Illumos. No, sorry. Ah, gee, I mixed up the names today. <laughs> sorry, yeah, that's the one. And uh, But they're also a great hardware um, provider if you're looking for yes. a solution for your open source, um, like server, or if you want to run a certain um, server version of a, an open source project and you don't know what kind of hardware this should run on, then go to talk to IC Systems because chances are they've done this already for a customer or they custom built you something that will give you the right amount of performance or the right amount of um, what kind of benchmarking you want to do or mm-hmm. what kind of key you performance uh, metrics you're looking for.
1: I- IX has a reputation for being very, very good at storage, but you know, the the same attributes apply when buying any kind of server, whether it's you'd need all compute power or memory or whatever. Whichever project you're trying to do, you just describe the projects and what your the problem you're trying to solve, and IX will help you build the hardware that will do the best job of it for the best price. Uh, you know, you'll get uh, an accurate quote for just the parts that you need. Uh, you get the right hardware for your project. Uh, it's very well built stuff. It arrives on time and the white-glove tech support you get is all onshore. There's no outsourced tech support.
0: Yeah, so it's all uh, built in one house, basically from the same people who built similar systems, if not the same, and uh, you know they have the expertise and um, know which components fit well together and provide you the right amount of uh,
1: performance or stability. and they've been deeply involved in FreeBSD since before it was called FreeBSD, uh, and so they know what works with FreeBSD. Uh, but, you know, lots of people buy Linux servers from them. If It's it's not BSD only, but they are the best shop to go to if you want BSD.
0: Yeah, so definitely check them out. And you can find various solutions from high-end uh, racks up to relatively small rack mount systems, way down to the FreeNAS Mini for your little desktop or office use to backup your files. So that's also expandable because many of these systems use uh, ZFS internally. So that gives you already the power and uh, stability um, that you know from ZFS.
1: Yeah, um, But this week they announced a new series, the TrueNAS M series.
0: Yeah, they kind so of made an... A secret about it a couple of weeks ago with uh, like a a blacked out screen uh, on various Mm -hmm. social media, but now it's unveiled. So Uh, so this
1: is a high-end ZFS uh, tiered storage system with NVDIMM and NVME uh, for high-performance caching. Caching. Cool. Uh, So this basically introduces the M40 and M50, which sit uh, between their... Uh, all flash arrays of the TrueNAS X series. Uh, and, or sorry, the Z series is the all flash one, and the X series is the hybrid, and the M sits in the middle. Uh, so, to give you kind of an idea of what the, what you get here, uh, the TrueNAS M series is basically a custom built for you chassis with two separate computers in it, basically, two head units, so you get high availability. And the chassis holds 24 3.5 inch drives. Uh, and then you can either get the M40 or the M50. Um, the M40 uses NVdims for the write cache and SSDs for the read cache and supports up to two external shelves of 60 hard drives each, allowing you to have up to two petabytes of storage. But wow. the M50 uses NVDIMS for the write cache, the slog, Uh, And NVMe drives for the read cache, the L2ARC, and supports up to 12 external 60-bay enclosures, allowing you to have up to 10 petabytes of data in a single unit. Plus, because the head is two separate computers, you have your dual controller design, so you get high availability, failover, and non-disruptive upgrades. So that, you know, if you're running your big compute cluster off of this, you can't have... Downtime. You don't want to have to turn off every single machine in your private cloud just to upgrade the storage server. So you can upgrade one head and then fail back over, run it on it a little bit, make sure everything's good, and then upgrade the other one and so on. Um, plus, because it's uh, TrueNAS, you get all the features, including uh, sharing via SMB, NFS, AFP, iSCSI, Fiber Channel, and S3. So you can uh, share files, blocks, or objects, all at high speed with the Truenas. Cool. That
0: certainly is something. Uh, not only companies, but also, uh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. the, the 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 necessity to necessar- yeah, necess- yeah,
1: to have that is pretty much universal for. Uh, but the M50 is just so drool worthy. Looking mm-hmm. at it, um, yeah, yeah. four. 100 gigabit ethernet ports three terabytes of ram 32 gigs of NVDIM uh for the slog and 15 terabytes of read cache that's all nvme and then yeah. up to 10 petabytes of spinning rust for storage yeah oh, wow <laughs> that's just yeah uh, that's making me lightheaded a- thinking about that <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's uh, you're getting ideas how to uh, uh, to you know ah well I could use that uh, well I just need to find a use case for it and it's quite yeah. easy to do that. <laughs>
1: uh and certified Citrix ready for Zen, VMware ready, or in uh, Veeam certified for backups as well. So, no matter what kind of private virtualization or whatever you're going to run on it, it's the best way to do it, and. You know, you get your high availability options with dual hot swappable controllers, giving you your ninety nine point nine 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 percent uptime. Hey,
0: nice, nice. That's certainly going to get people's attention.
1: Yep. So that was uh, that. So our next story is uh, oh yeah, some adventures with the FreeBSD scheduler. Yeah,
0: that's. Uh something that sometimes comes up in university classes where it's like, well, this operating system class is nice, but we want to know more about how the scheduler works. And this one is um from the FreeBSD mailing lists. And uh it's basically uh it's called creepy sadistic scheduler. And it explains how schedulers work or at least the FreeBSD scheduler. So that gives people an idea what it why it's doing the things it's doing the things it does. And uh uh, it goes uh, to begin with, uh, occasionally, uh, uh who posted that? Uh, oh, Peter. Ah, uh, there's no uh, second name. Okay. So, occasionally, um I noticed that the system would not quickly process the tasks I need done, but instead prefer other long-running tasks. I figured it must be related to the scheduler and decided it hates me. Okay. So, that's already a statement. A closer yeah, so, look shows... That
1: uh, your- basically, what they did here is they ran a Postgres vacuum to create... Um a hybrid workload where it's like do some disk IO and then have to do some compute on it and then do some disk IO and then do some compute on it. Uh and so they're running the vacuum and they're reading, you know, 13 megabytes a second off the disk, which isn't very much, but uh I get the feeling this machine's not very fast. We'll get to that in a minute. And then in another uh shell, they started just a a while loop of just running true, um using up a lot of CPU. And they found while that's happening, um That the Postgres vacuum would then slow down to ridiculously slow. Uh, So instead of, they were getting about 1,600 IOPS a second, and now they're getting nine. And when they ran top, they can see that Bash is using almost all the CPU. Hmm. Uh, And it turns out that in the scheduler, the quantum was set to uh, 94,000 ticks. So the process that, any process that was trying to use the CPU, Would be limited to ninety-four thousand ticks or ninety-four milliseconds of time on the CPU before having to give up and let somebody else have a turn. The problem is with this particular workload, Postgres would do a bunch of I/O and then wait on the compute because Bash had the CPU. Then Mm -hmm. it would get to do its little bit of compute, and then it would go back to doing I/O, not have any compute, and Bash would be given the CPU again. And we get 94 milliseconds before Postgres was allowed to touch the CPU again, resulting in Postgres only getting, you know, 10 or 11 IOPS a second. Uh, first thing we learned is that this was done on a Pentium one gigahertz. So it actually only has one CPU. Uh, normally this would be less of an issue because, you know, if your laptop even only has two cores, um... it probably has hyper things so it probably has four. But even if it only has two, um, it means both of these processes can run without actually interfering with each other. Uh, but in this case, because there's literally one core and zero threads, um, it was allowing Bash to dominate the CPU and not and the specific workload of Postgres or uh, I think in a later part of the thread they use LZ4 the the archiver. Um, to do mostly I.O. but a little bit of compute, and they kept getting blocked on the compute uh, because they'd have to wait until Bash had its turn on the CPU or whatever. So then uh, they changed the quantum uh, setting to the minimum, which was about 8 milliseconds, and then suddenly Postgres was doing 400 IOPS because it was only having to wait 8 milliseconds between each I.O. Mm. uh anyway the thread goes into it in a bit more detail and talks about it um and there's also talk about you know if you are still running a a Pentium 3 with just one cpu uh you probably want to recompile the default kernel without the smp option uh and possibly also skitch switch to the old 4bsd scheduler not the ule scheduler yeah uh, because there's a big difference um they also talked about there's another setting for the scheduler uh, called the preempt threshold, which controls how often you can kick somebody else off the processor. Uh, and they found that by changing that to one uh, from eight down to seven, uh, ah. suddenly you now Postgres and Bash are sharing pretty equally. Because the Postgres has a slightly higher priority on the CPU, so it allows Postgres to kick Bash off the processor whenever it needs the CPU time.
0: Yeah, so this is not a general thing to recommend, but for certain workloads or similar workloads like this, this could be an improvement.
1: But yeah, this this is less... I'm not covering this so much because people should go and change their scheduler tuning. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's that's more not, about uh, the, just the understanding that these knobs are there and that... Um, how you can actually observe what's happening and understand what's happening in this case. Um, you know, it makes sense that the CPU is being all used by this process. Uh, and this process does some IO. It goes to sleep while it waits for the IO. So it gets off the CPU and, and the bash loop got on the CPU. And then the IO finally finishes. And then Postgres is like, I'd like a turn on the CPU. But the scheduler says, well, I'm not going to kick the other person off until they've, they've had 94 milliseconds. And once they do, Postgres got on the CPU, did its one little bit of work, and then says, (laughs) okay, now I need this data off the disk, and went to sleep while it waited, and the other guy got back on the CPU, and then you had to wait in your turn again. Now, if this had been even a laptop with two CPUs, it probably would have been less of an issue. Although, you could probably run into the same problem if you had two bashes spinning, one on each CPU, and uh, the Postgres thread again. But
0: yeah, so the point is that the system is uh, tuned with general settings or mm-hmm. provided with settings that fit most workloads, but only change those parameters if you're actually experiencing some kind of bottlenecks. Don't just mm-hmm. randomly change sysCTLs just to think, oh, that makes, him, that, that makes my operating system faster. Only use that if you're really looking for uh, an improvement in a certain area. And if it La- works uh, fine for uh, you, then don't do a The bigger those.
1: outcome for this thread is if you have only one CPU, uh, you might want a kernel without SMP and use the the 4BSD scheduler, uh, which was designed for a time when people only had one CPU.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. So scheduler choice is also important, but more and more systems uh, are multiprocessors. I mean, pretty much anything you can buy today is multiprocessor, so... um, Yeah, good to know about the scheduler and how it works internally and what kind of uh, switches and knobs it has to change them, but don't necessarily change them just because. All right, um, that was the scheduler. Uh, Next up, we have a story from NetBSD uh, about ARCH64 support being added. And that's, of course, uh, good news for the BSD system that's been boarded to most... Uh, architectures out there uh, from the smallest uh, toaster to the biggest uh, mainframe and this one adds uh, ARCH64 support and that includes the Raspberry Pi 3 so we have a boot lock from there we're not of course reading the boot lock here because it's just uh, kernel talking back to the user and initializing devices and stuff but for people who are considering to buy a Raspberry Pi 3 if they can get one and run the NetBaseD on it they can see what the the um, devices look like and what kind of things are being detected already. And you can see, you know, uh, booting way up to the login screen, and you can see your familiar NetBSD login uh, announcement, and that's certainly good to know that you can uh, get it to that state So they write, now multi-user mode works stably on FTT-based boards like um, Raspberry Pi 3, Sun XI or the Tegra, but there are still some problems. More time is required for release. Uh, Also SMP is not yet working, so the Raspberry Pi has not just one CPU, but more than one. So if you want SMP, that needs to be a little bit more work uh, to get there. So at this point, you can only use once or just one CPU, I guess. And uh, especially the problems around TLS of RTLD and C++ stack unwindings are too difficult uh, for me. That's uh, from Rio here. Uh, uh, He gives up and needs someone's help. So if you're in NetBSD uh, area and want to help, that's certainly appreciated. And you can follow up uh, on the NetBSD uh, mailing list to uh, that thread. And uh, it seems like uh, NetBSD is just adding one more architecture but opens up a lot more Uh, devices with that because a lot of uh, different boards use that same architecture
1: well yeah this uh, supposed to be part of the promise of ARM64 is a little bit less uniqueness between all the different devices (laughs) Yeah, so that you know an operating system can just say we support ARM64 and now that's not going to support necessarily the nick on every uh soc but hopefully it means that a few more of the socs will just boot the os out of the box uh rather than each one requiring a unique bring-up process
0: yeah and then people can once they get into a login screen and then they can at least boot the operating system then they can start working on drivers and uh, applications and things like that
1: well getting into the os is a bit more complicated because then you're talking about a driver for storage but yes yeah true being able but you get to, to, get to get to multi-user to mode or something is is yeah. start.
0: Booting is already an accomplishment, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, time for the Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have as first item five reasons to use FreeBSD in 2018. This is a YouTube video.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty short. Ad- it's uh, worth checking out if you're interested nice to see uh just random videos on youtube about free bsd
0: yeah and it's not just uh the the reasons they could pretty much be the same reasons people started to use free a couple of years ago but there are some more uh reasons for people uh who start out in 2018 to just experience what free bsd has to offer and mm-hmm.
1: yeah watch that video and uh, try it out yourself so next i have a couple of uh Random things I picked up off Twitter, uh, all of which are pretty interesting. The first one is uh, Johannes Lundberg has a new version of the Intel Ethernet uh, E1000 NIC driver. So this is R-EM0, right? So EM0 is what the, the first Intel NIC uh, for like a desktop grade E1000 NIC would be called on your desktop. Yeah. Uh, R-EM0 stands for Rust, So they've re-implemented the EM driver in the Rust programming language. Uh, Interesting. uh, Running in Beehive, Uh, and they'll talk. uh, Apparently, there'll be another tweet later where they talk about why they ported the EM driver to Rust on FreeBSD. Uh, But I find this a very interesting idea. Hmm. Uh, And yeah, it's. Pretty amusing just to see even just a screenshot of a device. Yeah. That's obviously FreeBSD running with a Rust-based network driver.
0: Yeah, uh, there's also a chatter already going on about uh, talking more about this at a conference later on this year. So we'll keep you updated if there's some news in this area. Okay, then next up we have um, something else from Dan Langell. Uh, he's recruiting to make Elasticsearch and FreeBSD better. So people who want to learn more about their log files and how it all works together and, you know, drawing out the information from your logs, of various logs that you have on mm-hmm. your machines. Uh, Dan is looking for a contact from the Elastic project or the Elasticsearch in this case uh looking for um to create a partnership between them and the freebsd project to get official support for freebsd uh and he's sure that uh, falls within the freebsd foundation purview it sure does and if anyone knows any names feel free to contact him uh if you like
1: yeah so if you know someone at uh elastic the company or whatever um help dan get in touch with them and uh, get this project started
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll keep you updated if there's news in this
1: area as well. And, and then uh, we have yes. another tweet here <laughs> from uh, FreeBSD user Jason Tubner uh, a screenshot of Windows Server 2019 preview running under Beehive on FreeBSD. Ooh, so um, the latest Windows Server. Latest running view? on uh, an Atom C2758, no less. <laughs> <laughs> which I suspect might actually be a Freenas Mini. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, which I guess Windows would never uh, be portable or ported to. So Beehive makes it work. Of course, I don't know how the, about the performance is, uh, but it works. So Well,
1: this is mostly, it's <laughs> amusing to see that Beehive will even, or that, that Windows 2019 will boot in Beehive. Um, it's nice to see that that's already working.
0: Yeah, so Beehive is uh, way up uh, to the latest uh, operating system versions from the Windows camp. So that's good to know in case you need to virtualize this one application that's not available on the Unix systems. So yeah, definitely (laughs) give it a try and uh, see how well it works. Uh, oh, next up we also have a news item about SSH Mastery 2nd edition in hardcover. Of course, from our beloved author, Michael W. Lucas of the... Uh, I don't know if SSH I would say Mastery. beloved. <laughs> well, as an author, it's... I'm just teasing Lucas. Okay. <laughs> well, I, he he, he could punish me at BSDCAN uh, in various ways if he doesn't like that. So, uh, back don't to the article here, that. this blog. <laughs> oh, gee, I didn't give you many ideas. Okay, uh, so uh, he writes, I've been publishing books for about a quarter century now. At long last, one of my books is out in hardcover with a dust jacket and everything, introducing the newest version of SSH Mastery. And here's a picture. You can see how it looks like. Oh, that's certainly nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question is, why produce this book in hardcover? First, because I need to know how to do it. Self-published hardcover books are different beast uh, than paperbacks. One day I've had a serious need for hardcovers. That's not the time to learn how to create them. I'll need those skills in advance. And second, because I wanted to. Because how cool is this? Hardcovers are not cheap. This book retails for $39.99, but much like paperback print on demand, I expect the price to drop with time. In theory, the hardcover will withstand more abuse than a paperback. I love theories he writes. They have spending 40 bucks, uh they make spending 40 bucks on a book you can get for 10 in ebook sound sensible. So he has ordered a couple of hardbacks as gifts for the fine folks who sponsored this book. Uh, also this book uses his own ISBN number, uh which is the international standard mm-hmm. book number.
1: Mhm. I think this is a, the first one of the set that will actually use his own number now not the one provided by the publisher.
0: Mhm. <clears throat> yeah, this is bn 22 out of his block of 1,000, uh, so you can get the number in the blog post. Uh, you have my permissions to roll your eyes now because, yeah, Lucas, uh, we didn't expect anything else from him. So uh, he finishes with, as I don't expect anyone to actually purchase the hardcover edition, uh, I let myself have fun with it. The dust jacket is very Birds of a Feather. No, that's Bastard Operator, operator from, from Hell, hell. of course. How could I forget that? Okay, sorry. Uh, That's very Busted Operator from Hell-like and contains extra red. So yeah, if you want to get that for your bookshelf and actually read that book, which is quite good because it contains the latest uh, changes in SSH Mastery about key management and other things, so why not spend a little bit more money and get a nice hardcover book? If all else fails, you can squash bugs with it. That's my saying about it. (laughs) So definitely look at uh, Michael W. Lucas' books and uh, the latest ones, uh, SSH Mastery, for example. Of course, another book that he has written is uh, the third sponsor for our episodes, the Feedback and Questions section coming up next. uh, Tarsnap, he has written the book Tarsnap Mastery. Uh, Tarsnap is, uh, in short terms, your cloud backup, but for the truly
1: paranoid. Yes, it's the only secure online cloud backup service because it's the only one where you have the source code and can verify that your blocks are encrypted with your key and signed with your key before they're sent to the cloud. This means that no one in the cloud or any government uh, can read the blocks that you've sent to the cloud. It means that if you want the blocks to no longer be usable from the cloud, you destroy the key and now those blocks are useless. Whereas if you use some other service that doesn't encrypt your blocks and you ask them nicely to delete your blocks, you can't guarantee that they've deleted all of the copies and replicas of your blocks, because this is not possible to do. Um, Whereas if they're encrypted with a key and you've destroyed the key, you know for a fact that the blocks in the cloud are not useful anymore. Yeah, it's just garbage for them. if you use any other backup service, they don't give you the source code and you can't be sure that they're not encrypting a copy to their key as well or something so that they're able to read your files
0: yeah so it's encryption with the source code being available and providing you also with deduplications for your files in case there is some redundancy there you don't have to spend that many gigabytes that you originally have on your local Uh, disk
1: because TarSnap is pay-as-you-go you get charged for the number of gigabytes you upload and the gigabytes you store. So your data is chopped up into blocks, then deduplicated, uh, and then compressed before it's encrypted and signed and uploaded. The signature part is also important, because while it's important to encrypt your data before you put it in the cloud, it's also important that when you download it, you can be sure it hasn't been modified.
0: Yeah, because that verifies each time. Uh, the file is accessed. A
1: malicious attacker could modify your information to make sure that you can't get your files back or something and a signature allows you to detect that.
0: Yeah. So all these things come together in a nice package called Tarsnap and it's available for multiple operating systems and uh, so that gives you a good excuse to actually make that backup you always wanted to make. And in case something goes wrong you can get your files back as long as you have the key. All right. That's our feedback and questions section for this week, starting uh, with Jason uh, about the ZFS transfer option. So that starts. uh, Hi, guys. Uh, Just thought I'd follow up with uh, this question by listener David. We do exactly what he wants to do, just with a lot of data, with a mix of ZVOLs and datasets. sets. Uh, we do use ZX for, as maintained and mentioned by Alan, however, we use ZFSnap2, which is the next generation ZFS-snap, uh from packages and ports. Uh, ZFSnap2 takes the heavy lifting out of managing complex snapshot requirements by creating a lightweight script around ZFSnap2. ZFS snap too, yeah. And Z expert we are able to manage high and low change uh, snapshots over our fast replication links and slower uh, wide area network links, no matter what the storage consumers throw at the array. Hope this is useful and keep up the informative show. And see you at some of the conferences next year. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thanks mm-hmm. for those uh, uh, updates. Yeah, that's good to know.
1: Yeah, I should have put the episode number of the... The question he was referencing so I could remember it, it's a couple of weeks ago. But yeah. Uh I still would like to look at making a nice script that could do snapshots based on rate of change as well. Mm. You know, it's like we want a snapshot at least once a day, but also if more than a gigabyte is written, take an extra snapshot so that when I'm doing my incremental replication, I have predictably sized chunks. You know, so oh, yeah! any chunk I'm trying to do is never more than a gigabyte or something. Uh, of course, since you could write a gigabyte in a second, um, Nowadays, you don't want it? the script to have to run every second and be like, have you written a gigabyte yet? Have you written a gigabyte yet? So it gets <laughs> kind of complicated.
0: What yeah. uh I will definitely take a look at uh, ZF Snap 2 because it's – is that the uh, one just shell-based or is it a different one? I'm not one? sure.
1: Uh, my recommendation, I think, is ZFS Tools. Whichever one's is written by Brian Drury is the one I want to switch yeah. to.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not. Um, I'm happy with the old one that I'm currently using. It's mm-hmm. working perfectly. Um, it's rotating and rotating all my snapshots for months and years. Um, it's just a small uh, footprint of Ruby. It's not a big deal on a server, but yeah, when you can get it in shell, then why not use that? Or at least try it out. Okay. So thanks, Jason, for that um feedback. And next up is Luis with a ZFS Pools. So it's ZFS question time. So that one starts with, love your show. Thank you. I wonder if you could go back to do some simple tutorials like you used to. I would much appreciate tutorials on ZFS, PFSense, hardware, and hard drive burn-in tips. Uh, now my questions.
1: Uh, first. Well, first one, I don't burn in my hard drives. That's, I guess because I buy it from iX and they've done it again already, I guess. But anyway, go ahead and ask questions.
0: Yeah. So uh, he writes, I have a free NAS with 16 uh, Western digital? Yeah, digital Red, 3 terabyte and 6 terabytes for storage. I run own cloud, next Plex, NFS and SMB services. I have eight more empty bays for two and a half inch drives and a bunch of 64 and 128 gigabyte SSDs, new and used. Uh, as I'm building a Proxmox server for testing and learning, uh, should I create a new pool in Freenas just for the SSDs, or should I merge everything into one pool? If I join everything into one single pool, he writes, uh, how can I make sure the files on my dataset for the VMs is only on SSDs and not the rest of digital red?
1: Uh, you can't do that. So you're probably going to want to have the two separate pools, uh, to, a separate pool for the SSDs.
0: Yeah, because ZFS uh, levels all the data over the, over, the, over the drives or stripes them,
1: to be more yeah. correct. Um, with newer ZFS, it does it based on... It, it gives a little bit of work to each drive, and then whoever finishes first gets the next bit. Um, so it would still get probably the most of the performance, uh, but with the random seeks and so on, that you might want to... Yeah, there's currently not really a policy way to do... You know, this data set only uses the SSDs and so on. It's not really what ZFS was meant for. So yeah, you probably want to have the separate pools for the SSDs. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, okay. And the second question goes, uh, in my company, also has FreeNest similar to mine, since I built both of this, uh, one is only running SMB service, uh, one of the Western Digital Reds started sending too much errors. Uh, So he bought another Western Digital Red the same size, burned it in, took 80 hours and more. Oh, wow. And replaced. Now it is resilvering and it says it should take up to six hours. Uh, The question is, uh, what should I do with the old drive? Can I reuse it for a desktop? I think it should work okay. Not good enough for a ZFS system, I guess. Uh, What is your opinion on this?
1: Uh, As soon as the disk has become suspect, I don't want to ever see it again. Uh, You know hear lots of people trying to get a little bit of extra life out of an old hard drive or something like i don't want my data to go away so once a hard drive has started throwing errors i'm not going to use it for anything ever again
0: yeah so i can't reach it right now but my zfs book that's signed by alan so he signed in there benedict your files not your files (laughs) your disks are plotting against you and that's what they do and if they throw errors then you throw it out the window, basically. Yes, like in
1: medieval times. Once it's become obvious that this person or disk is plotting against you, you really want to, to you know, behead it and put its head on a pike, so the other <laughs> hard drives can see that if you misbehave, this is what happens. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. You make you uh, yeah. make the existing. You make the rest of the disks watch while you destroy the, the disk that through <laughs> errors. And then they learn. Yeah. See so, what happens when you don't fly straight. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, don't reuse it uh, because even on a desktop, you have valuable data that could be corrupted. Because the drive could be malfunctioning in various non-interesting ways. And uh, the manufacturer But, yeah, the manufacturing if, if it's already
1: started throwing errors, then yeah. hopefully you have a warranty and you get a free replacement. But…
0: Yeah. Okay. So that should uh, be answered. And the third question is: Is there anything like Proxmox for BSD with that awesome web GUI?
1: Um, I've not used anything like that. I've I've wished for something like that. Uh, There is Clonos, C L O N O S, so Clonos without the E, um, and it purports to be a web. GUI for Beehive and Zen using the Valley Switch jails uh, integrating CBSD and Puppet uh, and they have some videos and some screenshots that make it look uh, pretty good let me just uh, pull it up so I'm actually showing you the screenshots I guess yeah
0: um, well I, I guess many of the people um who are using a lot of uh, uh, jails and uh, virtualization on the BSDs are quite happy with the um, command line tools available that lists all these machines and uh, the jails that you have running. I mean, it's not
1: yeah, but uh, a nice web GUI is good. You know, I've, I've wanted the sure. uh, the proxmox but, of BSD to exist for a while. It's just, yeah. I, you know, there's still a lot to be done in that uh, regards.
0: Yeah, it needs need some web development skills as well as the integration skills to make it all work back with the actual tools that do the, the, the management. But certainly, if anyone knows about this or that we don't know yet about a management tool, uh, then let, it, let us know at feedback at bsdnow.tv and we'll uh, cover it in the next show, maybe in an article or in the feedback and questions section. So that's uh, connecting those shows together. Uh, So we put that in the show notes and just did that. And uh, yeah, thanks for your questions. Uh, Good luck with your ZFS. Uh, It seems like uh, you're doing the the right thing, uh, especially since you're not only using it uh, for your private data, but also taking it into the business and uh, making sure uh, your files are secured uh, and uh, stored by ZFS. All right, uh, next up is uh, Michael uh, asking about tech conferences. Oh yeah, wow, this is our... Our alley, Alan. Uh, It's a bit longer, but uh, here it goes. Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. As always, thanks for all your efforts to make a great show every week, and also to the Jupyter Broadcasting people behind the scenes. Yeah, definitely. We can't thank those people enough. That's not the people you see typically on the screen. But there are people behind the scenes you don't see, but they do as much work as we do on the show. All right, um, so while the weekly dose of BSD News has been very interesting for years, I currently appreciate a lot uh, that you're keeping us updated on what happens on the Meltdown Spectre front. Uh, that's particularly helpful. Yeah, it's affecting pretty much everyone, so we might as well cover it for <laughs> many people uh, because it's basically the same problems dealing with uh, most uh, different operating systems have to deal with the same problems. So um, it's interesting, but it is to, interesting see.
1: to see how each of them has handled it a bit differently.
0: Yep. So, uh, going on, uh, I'm a little behind on the episodes right now due to moving houses, but here's what I actually wanted to write in. You've been talking about how great conferences are often uh, enough so that I made a decision last year to attend my first one. You've also mentioned more than once that field reports by first-timers can be valuable for other people. Yes, they are. I enjoy hearing those too, so here's just a little bit of that topic from me. So the FFG, uh, which is the – oh, that's the German uh, Unix user group I uh, just saw from the URL, is an annual conference organized by the German Unix user group for over two decades. Uh, it is not the BST conferences. Well, well it could be, uh, but covers topics about Unix in general. I thought it would be a good idea to pick a first conference that's not abroad to keep the traveling costs low. Yeah, that's a good idea. So look for conferences that are close to you. And attending one where people speak a native language probably helps too. Yeah, for a start, I mean, you can still uh, move to the next conference after that. To but to break your mm-hmm. break in your conference uh, spirit, that's certainly a good way to do that. Uh, he writes, "I had a great time and got a lot of input on various topics. Not a problem really, but a bit of a pity. I felt a little alone among all those penguins until I met some Solaris folks later who provided uh, to be more interesting dialogue partners." Oh so, yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, if you even if it, you're at the conference where people uh, use the same operating system, it can still be a bit lonely because you don't know people yet and are a little bit shy sometimes to approach people. Um, yeah,
1: I know. Like I say, my first BSD can, I did all wrong. I, I think I met three people uh, and I mostly just went to the talks and sat quietly and so on. But uh, <laughs> well, that's a normal. I mean, yeah, uh, it's just... Uh, people just figure out. That, we have the newbie session uh, on Thursday night at BSDCAN this year. So if you're coming to BSDCAN, make sure to come to that. Um, and we help make sure that you meet a couple of people before the conference even starts so that you uh, get integrated into the conference board. And, you know, yeah. eventually, I think it was my second year. I so it was my first year going to a developer summit because uh, I think you and Drew invited me to the Doc Summit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so I was there for what would eventually become the goat boff years later. But before that was just the pre-conference beers at the Royal Oak. Um, So I'm walking up, I'm following some directions and walking up to this restaurant I've never been to before. Um, And then as I'm moving towards the door, a bunch of people on the patio are talking about right endurance and wear leveling on SSDs. I'm like, Oh, these are my people. So yeah. <laughs> I pull up an extra chair and join the conversation. <laughs> and,
0: and that's how know. it started. Yeah, exactly. But it certainly didn't end there. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, it, it continues even. Uh, except for uh, way too little non-Linux talks, I liked my first conference a lot and would also recommend attending one. That's why for this year, I decided to wave the flag of BSD and submit a talk. Oh, wow, even better. Uh, FreeBSD pitfalls for Penguin folks. And it was accepted. If anybody is interested in attending, too, the FFG is on March first. Ah, oh, that's uh, already uh, happened. And second in Leipzig, uh, and February twenty eighth for a workshop day. Okay, so um, yeah, we're a bit behind on that, but maybe there are recordings. So um, he writes, "I'd certainly love to meet some more BSD people there." Uh, I'm not sure whether that happened because the announcement <laughs> now is a bit too late. But uh, good to know. Oh, that's one something from me here. Uh, by the way, he writes, "Where were you last year, Benedict?" You're traveling around the world for conferences, and I really expected to see you around for UNIX conference that took place at the Technical University Darmstadt. Yeah, sorry. So Darmstadt has two universities, uh, the Technical Universities, where I'm not, and the University of Applied Sciences, where I am. Um, but speaking of that, are… Right, there it's still are,
1: local, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just it's other part of town. It's not even 10 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So what is your excuse? Uh, well, I should put that on my radar screen. So mm-hmm. I know a couple of conferences are happening in Darmstadt because they have a, a relatively big conference center there. Actually, big news, there is going to be, or people are planning in my department, two new professors are planning a open source conference in our university in Darmstadt after the week after, or one or two weeks after EuroBSDCon. Uh, I need to get more details. I'm not involved in the organization, um, but it seems to be a good start conferences about uh, open source and new IT. Uh, I don't know much more about that, just that there's going to be a thing later this year. So that's that could be a a thing. But um, going back to the uh, submission here, (laughs) to our feedback question, uh, that's certainly a good way to, yeah, Start with your first conference, see how this goes. And uh, from there, you can move on to like EuroBSDCon because it's kind of close in Europe, within Europe or BSDCAN. Um, definitely look out for us because Alan in this box up here and me in this box down here uh, are the first two people you would definitely recognize going to a BSD conferences because chances are we will be also there. Mm-hmm. And so we oh, owe a couple of people already. Talk to them yeah so if you're definitely interested and in, uh, always wanting to go to your first bsd or any kind of unix conferences definitely go you will certainly have a good time and if you just listen for the uh listen to the talks it's or talk to people in the hallway or just follow the conference program and that's certainly better than staying at home and watching the video recording but yes uh
1: definitely talk to other people uh hallway track and so on and just the hacker lounge is where all the fun is yeah
0: okay uh thanks for that submission here uh definitely uh want to learn more about those and if people had similar experiences send them in um last but not least is anonymous uh but uh talking about BSD trash on removable drives so that goes uh so my dash cam stopped working Turned out it was because of this Ubuntu Linux feature where you delete files from a removable disk, like a USB dashcam. It saves them to a .trash hidden folder on the removable disk itself, and it had filled up the camera's 8 gigabyte flash drive with trash. So the camera itself couldn't figure out what was going on, and I couldn't even delete the hidden folder. It just sat there, unable to do anything, unable to record, unable to switch into delete mode. Uh, it was creating empty folders like it wanted to record then putting nothing inside of them. Oh, great. Uh, There are literally literally hundreds of people who have reported this as a bug to the various Ubuntu and Linux powers that be, but it was never changed. I think it might be considered a GNOME issue or whatever. Uh, I really don't care, though. All I know is my dashcam quit working. So the question is, does BSD do this? Uh, but far more importantly, actually, what is the BSD philosophy on design choice like this? What do the BSD desktop
1: environments do in this situation? Thanks. Right. So the BSD, the operating system, doesn't do this. Um, however, if you install a desktop environment that provides that feature, it might. Um, there aren't really any BSD desktop environments other than Lumina. And from what I understand, Lumina does not do that. Um but if you install, you know, almost all of the desktop environments you can get on Linux are available on BSD, and there they will be similar. Um, but even if they are, you definitely will be able to find delete that trash thing. Uh, yeah. Also, it's with there most for- of them, if you if you do rm in the shell, it definitely removes it without going through the trash, and I think it's usually. Shift-delete will skip the trash when deleting something. I know that works on Windows and most Windows. operating systems. Yeah.
0: Because that's what people usually hear from Unix. If you delete something, then it's immediately gone and you can't get it back. That, whereas on Windows, you, yeah. it's been put on the, in the trash first and then you but can again, still
1: treat the there. But again, that's the desktop environment that decides that. So it yeah. might actually be a GNOME issue. It's definitely... Uh, now, it could be a Ubuntu issue into that. Ubuntu is a distro, so it combines the desktop manager and all this stuff together and makes an operating system. In FreeBSD, we leave the choice of desktop environment up to you, so you can pick one that does it or pick one that doesn't do it up to you. And um in particular, I don't think Base GNOME even includes this. It might be an add-on that Ubuntu does to protect its users or whatever. Um, and I imagine there's a setting somewhere, but... Uh, if you use BSD, it is very unlikely that this will happen, uh, and it'd be easy enough to fix if it did.
0: Yeah. Now the question is whether the dashcam will work with uh, BSD, or whether that's uh, compatible. Well, and it,
1: it, from the sounds of it, it shows up as a uh, usb a storage it. device. Uh, yeah. So okay, then you then should it be totally able to just works. delete the trash folder, suddenly have space, and his uh, dashcam will work again.
0: Yeah, so if that problem uh, gets you interested in BSDs, then certainly try it out. And uh, if it solves your problem, then you can use the dashcam with BSD, then try that out. All right, so thanks for that question. And again, send us any questions, feedback, show ideas, or stories that you found about BSDs, any BSD out there. uh, Send that to feedback at BSDnow.tv.
1: Yes. Thank you, and uh, we'll see you next week.
0: Yep, with more exciting news in the BSD area.